This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest today is Anne Patchett. In the Dutch house, Anne returns with her most powerful novel to date, a richly moving story that explores the indelible bond between two siblings, the house of their childhood, and a past that will not let them go. Pop Sugar says a new Ann Patchett novel is always cause for celebration, and this fall she brings us The Dutch House, the story of two siblings. The title of the novel refers to the grand home their father bought after the end of World War II. Danny and Maeve are exiled from their childhood home by their stepmother, and what follows is their story. And welcome to the literary life. One of the things that you do so very well is that you mine things that are so close to the bone, but that are not always within our view. It seems to be a specialty of yours. And and you achieve that so beautifully in the Dutch house. Talk a little bit about how the Dutch house came to be, the idea for it, and um, how you explored the various themes in it? Um, There were two things that happened. One was the presidential election in November of 2016, and I was thinking that the country seemed to be caught up in this massive celebration of extreme wealth, and that nothing could be better than extreme wealth. And the idea of writing a book about someone who really didn't want to be rich, didn't aspire to it or like it, that came to me as one thought. And then a week after that, I was interviewing Zadie Smith for Swing Time and um, talking about the fact that she had written what was purported to be a largely autobiographical novel and that I was just coming off tour for the Commonwealth, and that was also an autobiographical novel. And I was asking her about that, and she said, it is autobiographical, but I'm not the daughter, I'm the mother. And I'm not that mother, it's that that is the mother I am afraid of being. And so I wrote it as a way of making sure I wasn't going to be that kind of mother. And while I was on stage, I thought, I really want to write a book about the kind of stepmother I don't ever want to be. And it was the combination of those two things happening within a week of one another that really got the book on the road, you know, just like, oh, these are the things that I want to wrestle with now. Well, it's so interesting because you started with those two characters, which is the mother and then um, Andrea and mm-hmm. the the evil stepmother and the more saintly mother. Um, 
but at it's the heart, a little evil. <laughs> yeah, who is also evil. But at the heart of it, what you really, what you really capture so beautifully. I mean, I have, I have two sisters and a brother, but the the brother sister relationship, which is so intimate, um, is really at the heart of the novel. So when you talk about the fact that you had initially been drawn to try to create these two different women who were mothers, what you ended up with was reflecting them through what happened to this brother and sister who were abandoned by their mother. It's true, but you know the way ideas work. I I can tell you where it started. It in no way implies that that was the book that I thought I was going to write. It was just at what moment did this process begin? And and those were the moments. It it wasn't that I thought I was going to be writing about these mothers and then got distracted. Um, it was that was just the door that I happened to go through originally. Well, it was a great door because you created mm-hmm. these two Mem- Maeve and Danny or two memorable, memorable characters. And when was it that you knew it was their novel? Was there a time when you knew it was it was about them? You know, the way that I work is I get some beginning idea, and then I just think about it for a long time, and it changes and changes. And people are always saying, don't you take notes? And I don't take notes because... I feel like once I start to write something down, it it gets solidified, and I want things to be able to exit as easily as they enter. So, you know, I can't say at what point did I realize this was going to be Danny and Maeve's novel. I can I can tell you where the idea started. I can tell you that it finished up at the day that I actually sat down to write it. Um, but I. I can't really tell you at what point it shifted to be their story. I I know in the very earliest pieces that I wrote, it was the of the two of them in a car. There was a scene of the two of them parked in the car outside of the Dutch house, which didn't that scene didn't make it into the book. It certainly wasn't at the beginning of the book. Um, but I thought, oh, I really I like them and I like the way they're talking and. Also, my books carry over, so if there's something that I'm working on, I'm interested in in one book, uh, sometimes it takes me two or three books before I get it solved, and so Run was very much the story about siblings who were adopted and what their relationship was, their sort of non-biological, biological relationship, and then Commonwealth was a book about step-siblings. And I really enjoyed writing the stepbrother and stepsister relationship. And I thought, okay, now I want to write a book about a brother and sister. Hopefully this is now officially out of my system. <laughs> well, do you draw on things? I know you, you have two sisters, I believe. Is that right? And I have one sister. I have one, one sister. full sister. And then I have a whole slew of uh, step-siblings um, from different marriages that no longer exist and um, yeah is part of your process drawing upon some of those relationships taking a little bit from here and a little bit from there to some extent certainly that was true in Commonwealth it really wasn't true in this book this book was much more about um, 
the alternative, you know, the the sort of it's a wonderful life um, when George Bailey wakes up and sees what the town would have looked like if he had never been there. I mean, this this is kind of the the autobiographical novel in which none of these things <laughs> happen, right. and none of these were people that I knew, but but it does reflect things that I worry about. Well, you know what's so interesting too is as I was reading it. Um, it certainly, it covers so many decades and Mm -hmm. you flirt with what's happening in the world. Interesting for me to hear that you started it thinking of the politics from 2016 because although the politics of the last five decades or so or the five decades of the book are hinted at, it's really more of an insular story of a family. I mean, you... You make reference to the Vietnam War and you make reference to various things, but they don't take front and center. Really, it's almost it's almost what happens individually to these characters, which is much more the way real life is, I assume. I think that that's true, and I also think it, it's a matter of perception. People say to me all the time, oh, your books aren't political, and I think, really? They feel so political to me. Um, but I think... It is the personal feels political, and and this is the story uh, about well, is the story of wealth and poverty, uh, which feels to be the very heart of the American political problem right now, uh, and probably forever. And well, you do you do bring wrestling with that. You bring back the New York City of the you know the Upper West Side and the area around Columbia and. Uh, you bring that into the novel and you paint such a, a picture of what I remember it being back in those days. And I think you were, you were in school around that time as well, probably a little bit after that. But, a little after, yeah, yeah. But that was a very bleak place, a bleak time, and it was a very difficult time as well. But there was also, I think, the knowledge that, it, again, it's an island. It was It was bound to shape up. I mean, I don't think that anybody necessarily would have known that the New York of today is where we would have gotten to. But um, when you have a limited amount of space, property value is going to go up. It was really, really interesting and hard and fun to figure out the real estate of it all. And I met no, I, I, I enjoyed terrific the real... people who had great numbers. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that you could buy a brownstone in Harlem for $2,000. Yeah, no, you know... <laughs> You know, what's so funny is that it kind of mirrors, it was sort of a metaphor a little bit for what I went through. Uh, you know, here you have Danny who goes to med school but doesn't become a doctor and instead is in real estate. I went to law school, didn't become a lawyer, went into book selling. And when, huh. pe- when people ask me, they, you know, they've asked me, as I'm sure they will ask you soon, they say, okay, you've been a bookseller for over 30 years. What have you learned? And I often say, well, I've been a bookseller in Miami for over 30 years, and I learned I should have been in real estate. (laughs) Because it's the same thing. I mean, you look at some parts of South Beach, some parts of Miami, where nobody would have ever imagined that a building that you're in that might have been worth 200000 when you first started is now worth $20 million, you know, that sort of thing. Well, and we're certainly going through that in Nashville right now, too. We are having our big boom. and 
if you didn't buy property here five years ago, chances are you're not going to buy property here. Well, and you hit on something because the flip side of that is that, I don't know if it's the case in Nashville, but it certainly is the case in Miami where all of this wealth of real estate um, caused there to be what I call kind of urban removal, that people mm. who were living there in these neighborhoods who didn't own the property were having to leave the neighborhoods. And sure. Miami now is suffering as, you know, it's considered to be one of the poorest cities in the country. Uh, when you take the wealth disparity into play? I think we, Nashville, we're just starting that. We're having a mayoral uh, election right now, and that's the number one topic of conversation. You know, where, where do the people who work in all of these businesses actually live? So in terms of the structure of the novel, it, it seemed, I mean, you were masterful with it. It's a very tricky structure in the sense that it goes forward and backward, and various characters are unstuck in time. You're dealing with the past and forgiveness, but yet we're talking about, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing characters in the present talking about the past, and then they're living in the past. In fact, I think, you know, one of my favorite lines is, this is after something was resolved, I think, and you say, after years of living in response to the past, we had somehow become miraculously unstuck, moving forward in time just like everyone else. I yeah. love that line. Talk a little bit yeah. about your notion of time and memory and how that plays a role in this in this novel. Um, time for me as a novelist, and I think this is probably true for most novelists, it's, it's the most interesting thing to deal with. And figuring out a narrative structure and figuring out the time, the amount of time you're looking at, uh, and how people deal with time. It, it's just fascinating. Um, Carl, my husband, and I were talking the other night about a trip that we had taken, and we had no idea when we had taken it. Yeah, We could remember being in this place. We could remember the hotel. We could remember what we ate for dinner. We could remember the walks we took. We had no idea when we were there, right. um, what time of year it was. I mean, and that happens over and over again, that I can see things so vividly from some place that I was but I have no notion of when I was there or why I was there or how long I was there. Um, and it it does feel extremely fluid because things are so vivid, you feel almost like you could just step back into it. So that that way of viewing time seems incredibly realistic to me. But this is very much a book about people who were hurt when they were young, and they can't let go of it. And and so, in a sense, time stops for them when they're young, and they gnaw on the injustice of their childhood like a dog with a bone. Um, and they are very, very stuck, both Mamie and, oh, Maeve and Danny, Maeve, who was at one point named Mamie while I was writing this book, um, <laughs> they um, they have happy lives. I mean, they really are fully functioning, fairly successful people, except they can't let go of the hurt of their past. And that is something I think that's 
realistic for a whole lot of people. Yeah, and you you talk about you know the unreliable memory that you might have of the past. As Danny says to Maeve, do you think it's possible to ever see the past as it actually was? I know that I sit in a room with my brothers and sisters and we talk about an event that happened to all of us and each each one of us remembers it very, very differently. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's the past is a real Rashomon experience um, and you can have so many people who were right there together remembering things very, very diff- differently. And, and I think that with Danny and Maeve, the decision to not remember anything that was good, the decision to just focus on what was hard and unfair and, and kind of cultivate that as a fetish over the years with the help of a cast of characters who oh, I love that. for their family. I love that. I love Fluffy particularly. <laughs> I love that cast of characters. I mean, to think of Fluffy and then Fluffy coming back into their lives, taking care of Danny's kids. But all of them, I mean, Celeste. And I also, you know, between you and me, I love knowing who some of the, knowing the real people of some of the names that you mentioned, like Julie Norcross, for instance, oh, right? Only, right? Only I might be the one to know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> She's and got all a, of our friends in Petoskey, they've Michigan. They've got a beautiful bookshop up there, don't they? Um, uh, it's absolutely one of my favorites. Well, I'll tell you, Fluffy is um, is Fluffy D. Camillo. Um, that is Fluffy's full name. Oh, and, D. Camillo. So and it, Fluffy is what I call my friend Kate. Um, right. I oh, that I always did, called her Fluffy. That I didn't, <laughs> that I didn't know at all. That's yeah. great. Um, and, and also the other character, Sandy, is is Sandy Boynton. Oh, so really? God, that's phenomenal. That's really (laughs) wonderful to know. And also, I have to say that it took me a little by surprise. I didn't think that Maeve and her mother would bond as quickly as they did. And I know that you have a very, very close relationship with your own mother, right? I mean, and she's a writer as well. Yes. A very accomplished writer. And, you know, your journey to become a writer, did it flow through your mother in any real way? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, You know, I think my mom, when I was growing up, my mom always wrote, she wrote poems and stories. And, and I was so insanely in love with my mother when I was a kid and, um, and always thought that she could do this. She just didn't have my self-confidence. And then as I got older, I, I really pushed her a lot. Um, and I think that my mother would still be writing for her desk drawer if I wasn't there barking at her and pulling pages out of her desk drawer. So Is she still a, is she living in Nashville as well? Yeah, she lives about three blocks away from oh, me. That's fantastic. Uh, you were born though in Los Angeles and then you moved to Nashville. Yes. And became part of the I mean, there's an amazing um kind of contingent of folks from Nashville who went on to write as well as publish and all of that sort of thing. So it's become a little bit of a literary hub now. We're working on it. Lori Moore actually lives about half a block from me. I didn't know that. I didn't know that she lived in Nashville as well. Yeah. She's never here. She's teaching at Vanderbilt, and it's like whenever she has a day off, she flies back to Wisconsin. 
um, it, the, the extent to which I walk my dog past Lori Moore's house every day, many times a day, and I virtually never see her. I'm more likely to see her in New York than I am on the block. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was reading this, I have to admit that because we're friends and I've known you over the years, there are some things that it didn't seem autobiographical, but I knew that, for instance, your husband, Carl, had to be helping you through some of those medical uh, scenes that you had uh, developed, yeah. I bet. Yeah, and boy, he had some great moments. Yeah, I, I, I'm always, for some reason, like walking into Carl's closet in the morning and saying, okay, how would this person die if, they, if this, that, and the other thing happened? But there's one scene where Danny is just starting medical school and they're in a big auditorium, all of the medical students, and the head of each of the department gets up. This is pulmonary, this is cardiac surgery, this is the thoracic, this is the, the kidneys, and, and everybody who is interested in that part of the profession claps and cheers. And Carl told me that story, and I thought, that's just the strangest, best <laughs> detail. And then I talked to him a lot about autopsies, cutting up your first dead person. and He's very handy, my husband. The other thing I need to thank you for is becoming a bookseller. Uh, you have brought, you've become such a remarkable model and spokesperson for all of us. You know, indie booksellers everywhere look to you and know what you've done in terms of shining a light on what it is that we do. Tell me a little bit about how that, how you came to open a bookstore. And I know that you did it with Karen. And how did that all happen? Just, I just backed into it. I mean, I, I look back on that, and it was as if I wasn't even making a decision. I, you know, our bookstore, Davis Kid, closed. We had a big Borders in town. That closed. We lost them about six months apart. They were both 30,000 square feet. Um, and both were profitable. They, they were both chain decisions to close those two stores. We had two 30,000-square-feet bookstores in town. We were both profitable every month. And I didn't want to open a bookstore, um, but I kept waiting for somebody else to do it, and nobody was doing it. And I was introduced to Karen Hayes by our mutual friend, Mary Gray James. And over the course of lunch... I said, what if we had a 50-50 partnership and I paid for everything and you ran the store? And that was what we did. We met in the middle of April 2011. No, that's not even true. We met the last day of April, April 30th, 2011, is when I met Karen, and we opened on November 15th of that year. A, I had at least worked in a bookstore before. Karen had never worked in a bookstore. She was a sales rep for Random House, so she called on bookstores all the time and I, I don't even know how it happened how it all came together so beautifully except to say that Karen uh, is smart and hardworking and diligent and she really made it happen and she is the store but I am the face of the store and the voice of the store and I like to say I am to Parnassus Books what Julia Roberts is to Lancome Mascara. I <laughs> don't manufacture it. I don't market it. I just wear it. Um, 
and and that is a big deal. It's a big help. You wear it and very, very well. And I wear it very well, that mascara. You and do. I get a lot of attention for it while Karen sits in the back <laughs> and orders the books and deals with the air conditioning shutting down and, you know, not from whatever, book, not whatever from, it is to be dealt with that day. Not from a um, business perspective, but from a from both a writer's perspective and a reader's perspective, what what has either surprised you or what have you learned from the customers who come in? I have learned that what people want is a smart, accessible book that won't crush them emotionally. I really feel like that's what people secretly hope to find and and that sort of surprises me you know that there's there's commercial fiction okay we we got that and then there's the literary fiction we've got that and what i feel like people are always hunting for is something something that is smart but will in fact make them happy in the end a lot of what's really smart can feel a little abusive sometimes. Um, just that it's it's so much work, or it's such such sadness, so much heartbreak in in these gorgeous, wonderful novels, and that people will say, you know, I just need a little break. Well, you know, they're great. People are really willing to take the hard stuff on. But I'm always happy when I've got a book that I can recommend that that also lifts them up from it a little bit. What do you and, re- and that surprises me. What are you recommending these days? Um, <laughs> well, I know that's see, hard. You know, the book that I love so much this summer is the polar opposite of what everything I'm saying, <laughs> and that's the the Nickel Boys. I know, I know. Um, you know, that is to me. If I put that in somebody's hands, I'm saying brace yourself, um, because it took me three tries to get past page fifty, yeah. because it was so damn hard. In a way that actually Underground Railroad wasn't for right. me, um, and completely worth it. I'm so glad I did it. It's a brilliant, amazing book, and I would read Colson Whitehead's anything. Um, I feel like I have just been a fan of his since the intuitionist, and I've never blinked. Um, but that's a that is exactly the opposite of what I'm talking about. Uh, Margaret Rankle has a book called Late Migration. I love that book. That's a great love, book. I yeah. love that book. And tell people that, tell people about it a little bit. Um, it's. A collection of very small essays. Margaret writes uh, op-eds for the New York Times. It's about the natural world. It's about her childhood in Alabama. It's about being a daughter and a wife and a mother and a friend, um, all in relation to the natural world. And yet, all these little essays, which every single one of them are perfect and beautiful and well done, they add up to something so much greater. And you almost never see an essay collection, and this doesn't even feel like an essay collection, with a narrative arc. 
where you you have this feeling like you're reading a novel. And also, Margaret's brother, Billy Rankle, did these beautiful color plates, uh, which she refuses to call illustrations, but they are art pieces in conversation with the book. And the other thing that I love about the book, so it's a gorgeous thing, you know, if you say, why why should I buy a hardback book? Pick up a copy of Late Migrations, because that's, that's the reason why you should be buying hardback books. Um, and it's also published by Milkweed. And when Margaret finished this book, she sent it that she sent it to Milkweed. They they were having a contest, and she sent it into the contest without trying to get an agent, without sending it to any of the big houses. And Milkweed said, "Wow, thank you so much. We would love to publish this." And Margaret, who was shy and self-effacing, was absolutely thrilled. And when I found out about it, I thought, "Oh." Damn, I wish that she had sent this to Random House. Um, but that said, Milkweed's doing a fantastic job. No, they're doing and a great job. It's the... So it's really, really exciting to see a small press taking what is a very quiet book, but I think it's also a book like Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. I mean, I think it's a book that people may well be reading 50 years from now. Oh, that's a great reference. That's a great comparison. God, I could talk to you all day. You can. <laughs> you you reference in you know one of the things that made me a little sad is to hear that the Paris Theater is now out of business, and the Paris Theater has a has a small cameo in your book. Yeah. And Jacques Tati oh. has always been a fan. I've been a huge fan of his. And, and Monocle, <laughs> they they go to see Monocle in in you know the Paris Theater. And and the Paris Theater literally just closed down. I think the last thing they showed was the Pavarotti uh, documentary. Oh, but uh, but that's the. I, you're breaking news to me. I didn't know that. It yeah, closed. it just closed. And these little nuggets that just pop up where where you know Celeste is on the train meets meets uh, Danny and she's uh, well no, it's when when Maeve is showing off her knowledge of poetry and they're, and they're reciting Philip Larkin to one another. Those, yeah. little, those little things make this book, uh, The Dutch House, you know, that much more rich. And um, Can I tell you a great story about the Philip Larkin? Yeah. I love that poem, Home is So Sad, and it's so perfect. I mean, it, it just feels like a poem that has to be in the book, and it's eight lines long. And... I had to pay a fortune for it. Oh, is that and, right? And oh, they said, no. well, you know, if you only use a sentence or two sentences, you you don't have to pay for it. And I said, no. <laughs> I would, I'd just I'd spend anything to get that poem into the book in its entirety. So, uh, But you had two different, maybe you could have, because you had two different characters reading it, maybe you could have just got it half price each, you know, each one or <laughs> I don't think it works that way, but it makes me happy that you, uh, that you called that out because it's very dear to me. Oh, it's a lovely poem. Is it not the prettiest book you've ever seen? It's gorgeous. Gorgeous. And the paint, I, I just kept every time, I just kept looking at that cover. I mean, that painting that was done. And a friend of mine did that. Who? Yeah, I was going to ask you who did the who did the painting. It was um, Noah Satterstrom, who lives here in Nashville, and 
when I finish the book, this is a great thing that I've learned over my career. If you want a cover that makes you happy, you have to figure out what you want. You cannot say, oh, I have no idea. Please make me happy. It's kind of like your birthday. Right. <laughs> it's, right. it's your responsibility at a certain right. point to figure out what you want. And it was very important to me that there was not a house on this book or any element of a house. And I knew I wanted this painting of Maeve to be on the cover because it plays a role in the book. And I thought that I could find an archival painting, kind of a singer-sergeant sort of thing of a girl. And I found a lot of paintings that were the right girl, but she was always wearing a pinafore or a bonnet or, you know, it wasn't, that didn't work. And so I asked Noah Satterstrom if he would, you know, give it a shot. And um, and I said, I, I need a picture of a 10-year-old girl with a black hair in a red coat. It would have been painted in the 1950s to be in the style of 1910. And the painter was Scottish, and she's in love with the painter. Right. And Noah still hasn't read the book. He has three little kids and a huge career. I said, do you think you could do that? And he said, yes, and he painted it in four days. Oh, he nailed it. He completely uh, just, nailed it. Just perfect. He, and got, I, he got the and black hair. And I sent hair. the picture to HarperCollins, and I said, okay, this is what I want on the cover. And they said, great, thanks so much. And this has been delightful. I can't. It really has been. I just, can't. We should, I think, oh, we should talk more often. We really should. Regardless of whether or not someone is taping us. No, 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 we really should. I would love to. We should. There's just so much to talk about. Um, do you have a little, do you have the book near you at all? Is there a little bit that you can read, do you think, that you'd want to read from? I do have the book near me. This, this is going to be one long paragraph that is slightly less than a page. Is that all right? Perfect. And this is Danny, of course, speaking. I will always believe that Andrea's face fell for an instant when she looked at Maeve and me. Even if my father hadn't mentioned his children, she would have known he had them. Everyone in Elkins Park knew what went on in the Dutch house. Maybe she thought we would stay upstairs. She'd come to see the house, after all, not the children. Or maybe the look on Andrea's face was just for Maeve, who, at 15 and in her tennis shoes, was already a head taller than Andrea in her heels. Maeve had been inclined to slouch when it first became apparent she was going to be taller than all the other girls in her class and most of the boys, and our father was relentless in his correction of her posture. Head up, shoulders back might as well have been her name. For years, he thumped her between the shoulder blades with the flat of his palm whenever he passed her in a room, the unintended consequence of which was that Maeve now stood like a soldier in the Queen's court, or like the Queen herself. Even I could see how she might have been intimidating, her height, the shining black wall of her hair, the way she would lower her eyes to look at a person rather than bend her neck. But at eight, I was still comfortably smaller than the woman our father would later marry. I held out my hand to shake her little hand and said my name, then Maeve did the same. Though the story will be remembered that Maeve and Andrea were at odds right from the start, that wasn't true. Maeve was perfectly fair and polite when they met, and she remained fair and polite until doing so was no longer possible. Oh, it just gave me chills. 
Mm-hmm. And and Patchett, thank you. Thanks for being. Thanks for living the literary life, and thanks for being on the literary life. Can't thank you such, enough. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me, and I'm looking forward to seeing you. See you soon. Take care.